you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales and master detective novels. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for and about women. On today's episode, Valerie pitched Guardians of the Galaxy so that we can study beginnings and endings. This 2014 film was directed by James Gunn from a screenplay by James Gunn and Nicole Perlman. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we'd also love it if you could give us a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page and scroll down to the bottom. It's that simple. All right, Valerie, now I'm really keen to hear what you think the genres are for Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, this is a stumper, this one. (laughs) Guardians of the Galaxy, I am saying it's an action story and there isn't really a secondary genre. (laughs) Funnily enough, I have exactly the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) See, we can agree from time to time. Alrighty, so I picked Guardians of the Galaxy this week because in past episodes and in past seasons, we have studied some major franchise films that were amazing cinematically. You know, we, we've oohed and awed about the CGI, uh, about the music and the costumes. I'd love to be a costume designer. But when it came to the storytelling, they, they kind of fell short. In particular, I'm thinking of uh, the episodes we did on Rogue One. Dune, and Captain Marvel. So Guardians of the Galaxy, I thought, might be kind of a nice one to do to sort of counterbalance those, (laughs) to compare and contrast, because I think it is quite well-crafted for a superhero movie. And, you know, it's also, it's a fun movie. It might be kind of nice to sort of see what makes this one tick. Now, full disclosure... When I saw the mo- the trailer for this movie, when it f- came out initially, I gave it a hard pass. I really did. I thought it looked totally stupid, and I thought the raccoon was completely ridiculous. But the weekend it came out, no joke, I started to get messages from friends who were recommending it. And if I bumped into someone, they'd say, oh, have you seen Guardians of the Galaxy? And these were friends who weren't necessarily fans of superhero movies. So naturally, my curiosity was piqued. I took my two kids to it, and the three of us had a really good time. I mean, this is a movie that is just plain fun. Admittedly, the music did add to my enjoyment. I can't lie. Uh, And I've seen it a few times since then. And I can say that um, the story is kind of thin, yes, but the storytelling structurally, It works. It's sound. And when I say that it's kind of thin, I'm not saying that as criticism, because honestly, we don't always want heavy dramas. Sometimes we just want some light entertainment, and that's what Guardians of the Galaxy is. It knows what it is, and it does it well. 
I guess that's a good way for me to put it. Now, I, I'll be honest. I don't know where this fits in the broader Marvel universe. Melanie, you definitely have a better handle on this than I do. There was a time, though, when I decided to watch all the movies in order. But when I looked at that list, that was a bit of a time commitment. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not a, I don't dislike Marvel. I'm not that big of a fan. Okay. Anyway, last week I mentioned a book by John York called Into the Woods, How Stories Work and Why We Tell Them. In it, York explains that the first and last acts of a story mirror one another. Some stories are very clear with the mirroring, like the example that York gives in the book of The Social Network. Others have similarities, but they aren't exact mirrors. And we talked last week as well about using the phrase, having the beginning of a story and the ending of a story rhyme and how that might make more sense to some people. Whichever term works best for you, use that one. All right, so how does this mirroring or rhyming concept work with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy? In the first act, Peter loses his mother and gets a gift. He finds the orb and he is unknown as Star-Lord. And he is arrested with other individual characters and he is recognized but as Star Prince. So in the last act now, we have these separate individuals who are arrested. They're now a team. Peter loses the orb to Yondu, and it's a fake orb, of course, and he hands the real orb to Nova Prime. Either way, the, in the first act, he got the orb. In the last act, he's giving away the orb. And then finally, the gift that he got from his mother in the beginning, he opens up. So it's kind of the same as the social network where step-by-step step we're going into the movie and then those same three steps are in reverse order as the movie finishes off. So the, in the beginning, the very first scene, losing his mother and getting the gift in the, well, it's not totally the last scene, but it might be the next to last scene. We see him opening up the gift. I hope that makes sense. It makes more sense if you sort of look, uh, if, if you get York's book and look at how he's written it out. Hopefully it makes sense um, as I'm saying it. Melanie, what do you think about this so far? Well, I think that's interesting in terms of how that, how that structures like the steps in and the steps out. And I can see that very much in this movie and probably more so in this movie than other movies before it in terms of when they were released into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, not in terms of chronologically where they occur on that on that timeline. And that, I think, reflects really like it's light. There's a light touch to all of this. It's not an, which fits in with the type of movie that it is. And so when I see this, I go, yeah, that's, that's a really good reflection of what happens and how you step into and out of this this movie. And it rounds it out, I think, as its own story nicely, even though there are hooks into Volume 2, which is the sequel of, of Guardians of the Galaxy in the story. But you could watch this movie as a standalone and feel that it's complete in itself. So I think, and the ending, uh, the beginning and the ending does that and sets that up and makes it a, a a chapter in and of itself as a standalone, if that's what you wanted to do. 
Okay. So for me, one of the things that makes Guardians of the Galaxy so much fun is that it's self-aware. Now, this is a really tricky thing to pull off. I, you know, I really do think that this is an advanced technique. And I think it, in order to pull it off, the writer or writers in this case really have to be huge fans of the genre they're writing in. They've really got to have consumed everything that's been written or or created, any films created in the genre. They've got to have a deep-rooted understanding of the conventions of the genre and the subgenre. In my opinion, that's the only way a story can poke fun at itself and still work and still be an homage to the other, uh, in this case, superhero movies that have come before and, you know, get some laughs from the audience because it's it's letting the audience in on the joke, which I think is, it's just fun. This is just a fun movie. Let me give you a couple of examples. So <laughs> Peter's gift is that he can dance and <laughs> it makes us laugh when we first meet him because we're not expecting him to suddenly start dancing. And it makes us laugh at the end when he starts to distract Ronan. It kind of, it's not the same, but it, it's kind of reminiscent for me anyway of Die Hard because there John McClane, his gift is that he's a wisecracker, right? So at the end of that movie, when he's up against Hans Gruber, you're not expecting him to start laughing it, and, it to and neither is Hans. That's why it totally destabilizes him. Same thing happens here. <laughs> Peter starts to dance and Ronan like is just not expecting that. Now, in the real world, I love dance and I love dancers and I think that they are highly disciplined athletes and artists, so I am not at all dissing the skill of dance. But in the world of superheroes, dance isn't a superpower. <laughs> Us mere mortals can dance. In a superhero movie, in that kind of a universe, in that world, we're expecting, you know, laser beams out of eyeballs or something like that. We don't expect something as mundane and as human as dancing. Another example is Rocket's mockery of a classic, a trope scene that the audience has seen a thousand times before. Now, it's meant to be an emotionally charged scene, but... Gunn and Perlman subvert it by having Rocket, and this is this is the scene where they come together as a team, and uh, Quill is sort of laying out the plan, and one of the characters says, "Well, you're asking us, you know, to put ourselves in a position where we could die," and he says, "Yeah, that's what I'm asking," and they're all sitting around in a circle, and one by one they stand up. We've seen this so often. Rocket is the last one to stand up. And, you know, he stands up on his little box and says, well, here we are, a bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. <laughs> it's funny. It is funny. Uh, and then, of course, there's Ronan's monologue in the ending payoff. Now, if you have never noticed the villain monologuing, <laughs> After hearing this episode, you can't help but see it. I, I bet you anything, you're going to start to see it now in all the superhero movies. And it's in other movies too, but in superhero movies, it really is there. And The Incredibles, which is a film I love, 
they poke fun at it as well. If you've seen that movie, you'll remember a scene where Frozone and Mr. Incredible are reminiscing. They're recounting stories of their past adventures. And Frozone talks about how he caught a villain monologuing. It's funny stuff. Now, um, before we got on the call to record the episode, Melanie and I were talking a little bit about this orb switcheroo thing at the end, because it struck me as a bit of a plot hole. And I had to consult my Marvel Universe expert. Uh, Melanie, do you want to just explain what we were talking about? Yeah, so we identified there's a little bit of mystery surrounding the orb. And um, we were talking about how does Peter actually end up with two orbs, one that has the power stone in it and then the other one that he gives to Yondu at the end. But it is set up. So Gamora does give all of the Guardians a fake orb just in case or a container. So it's basically a container just in case any of them actually get to the power stone because if you touch the power stone, it, it's, it will destroy you basically. That's the setup or the premise of the power stone and what it can do to you. So you need to capture it into an orb. The orbs though that Gamora gives out are not as dec decorative as the actual original orb. So when Peter hands it over to Yondu at the end, it should be a pretty clear uh, giveaway that there's something very different. And I don't know who actually ends up holding the filigree or the, the the decorative orb, but that's a bit of a plot mismatch sort of hand-eye trick about, well, which orb containers are which because none of the ones that Gamora hands out actually look like the original orb container. So we were just talking about that and how it is set up, but there's actually then it's set up and then Peter hands it over and it's a trick and there's nothing in the middle that shows how Peter did the switcheroo, where he put the troll into the one of the orb containers, which is the one that Yondu then opens. So there's a little bit of mm, it's it it works, but if you dig too deeply into it, it's lacking a level of detail that you might expect in other types of movies. And then you said to me, but those of us in the Marvel universe, we just sort of gloss over those little <laughs> discrepancies <laughs> we do we're not there for that we're not there for that are we when like, that is not what these movies are really for they are for just the experience of the blockbuster and to relive part of the comic books that we grew up with and the characters that we love so we are very forgiving I think of of some of the plot holes or the anomalies that appear in uh, the Mar the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> All right, so I want to talk about a new concept now that I haven't touched on yet this season, and that is a satisfying ending. So just as there are things the beginning of a story needs to do to set up the story and hook the reader or viewer, there are things the ending needs to do to send the reader or viewer off into the world with a good feeling. Yes, there's this whole concept of catharsis, but that's a topic for another day. Right now, all we need to do is realize that at the end of the story, when the book is closed or the TV is turned off, the reader or viewer needs to be satisfied. Now, that doesn't mean that every story needs to have a happy ending. A satisfying ending and a happy ending are not the same thing. 
Now, this is a word of mouth business. <laughs> if the ending of your story is terrible, then the reader or viewer is not going to be happy. They're going to feel that their time and their money has been wasted. And oh, yeah, they'll talk about your book. Absolutely. But not favorably. And they sure won't come along looking for your next book or your next screenplay. This isn't just storytelling 101, it's marketing 101. So that begs the question, what does it mean for a story to have a satisfying ending? Well, at its highest level, for an ending to be satisfying, it has to make sense. Last week, I talked about how the beginning sets up the ending and the ending pays off the beginning. I've also said that the beginning poses a question and the ending answers the question. For the ending to make sense then, and therefore be satisfying, the end needs to answer the question that was posed. It doesn't answer a different question. It doesn't make up a new question somewhere along the line. Let me go back to the born identity and use that as an example again. I'm getting more mileage out of the born identity than I ever thought I, that I ever thought was possible. All right, in the beginning of the born identity, the question being asked is, who is this guy? The ending, the reply is, this is who the guy is. So who is this guy? Well, this is who he is. Pretty high level, but you, you catch my drift. Now, David Mamet says that an ending needs to be surprising yet inevitable. Again, that's great, but what does it mean? <laughs> Staying with the born identity, since the beginning question is, who is this guy? It's inevitable that we discover who he is. But our assumption is just like that of the characters. We assume that identity is an external thing. It's our name, our job, where we live, and all that good stuff. The surprising part about the ending of the born identity is that we discover that identity is actually none of those things. Identity is about who we are on the inside, and we get to choose that. Nobody gives it to us. The government doesn't give us an identity by issuing a passport. Our parents don't give us an identity by giving us a name. So, does the Guardians of the Galaxy have a satisfying ending? Is it surprising yet inevitable? Let's start by considering the question posed at the beginning. And the question is, what's in the orb? In the end, we discover that inside the orb is the Infinity Stone. So that's good. The question that's posed at the beginning is answered at the end. But the answer isn't particularly surprising. When this movie came out, we didn't know what Infinity Stones were. At least I didn't. All I knew is what they told me in the movie, which is that it was just, it's a MacGuffin, right? It's the thing that's of importance to the villain. And it doesn't matter what it is. It only matters that the villain wants it and the hero has it. So because it's a stone in this movie is neither here nor there. It's just the thing that Thanos and Ronan want. And we don't really understand the significance of an infinity stone, you know, when this movie came out. But that doesn't mean it dilutes the story at all, because what Gunn and Perlman have done has latched onto this concept of a MacGuffin and made sure that that story theory was working really well. They didn't need to explain what an infinity stone is. Now, it's kind of surprising 
that the Infinity Stone doesn't kill Peter because we've been set up to believe that if Peter touches it, he's just going to die. But it's easy to assume from the way the scene plays out that Peter dies because the other guardians step in to kind of dilute the impact of the stone's power. It's not surprising that Peter's adversaries respect him in the end or that he flies off into the sunset. I mean, we kind of expect that, right? I mean, of this type of a movie, um, that kind of an ending is inevitable. It's not particularly surprising. All the same, this is still a satisfying ending because as we said at the beginning, there really isn't a higher level of expectation from this kind of superhero action movie. And that's not to put the genre down at all. But these kinds of stories are by nature fairly superficial. There isn't an expectation from the audience of any particular level of depth. Now, before I hand it over to Melanie, I just want to mention one other point here about Guardians of the Galaxy. Anyone who is writing a book that has multiple protagonists or you're writing from multiple points of view, Guardians of the Galaxy is an excellent example to study. Why? Because they do a really good job of introducing each of the characters at the beginning of the movie and explaining what their objects of desire are. So when I say each of the characters, I don't just mean the guardians, I also mean the villains. They're introduced, and as they're introduced, their object of desire, which is what they want and why they want it, is clearly established and it's quickly established. In fact, this is what takes up um, pretty much the whole beginning hook. Now, Drax the Destroyer and Thanos don't enter the story until the second act, but even when they show up on screen, their objects of desire are established clearly and quickly. Melanie? Oh, that's a a good point. I hadn't thought about that. But yes, it's an interesting um, story really because it has got a team of people in it and you do have to understand how different they are but also then how similar they are and and how they actually get together and work as a very disparate group of people by the end of end of the story and that's a very universal theme like there's a lot of things that occur in that story about you know a band of brothers kind of story where they have to go through some sort of traumatic or big event quite destabilizing and that that bonds them so that is and that occurs and so that meets our expectations for that kind of team story that we see in Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, So I'm just going to go a little bit further and again look at how this story is broken down from a sequence perspective. Now Guardians of the Galaxy is an origin story for that team and along with a lot of firsts this which is in this iteration of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So we see a lot of the origin stories. And it, as I mentioned, it works well as a bonding movie where the group of misfits come together to form a supergroup, which is far more powerful than each individual member. So there are also some very good obligatory hints for the sequel, which is volume two of the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And it's interesting because I didn't pick those up really the first time I watched the movie, but I did pick it up in this 
this week and studying it because I have also seen volume two and I now understand what they're referring to. Um, but I didn't notice those the first time. So I found that very interesting. So I thought this week I had a really good plan to track the progress of this movie and understand where I might find the sequence breaks. But like most plans, it fell to pieces at first contact. <laughs> so what was my plan? Well, it was to track the action by the location of the orb. And this worked very well right up until the middle of the movie. And then I think like in the movie, everything turned to custard around the middle of the movie and then it continued to go forward as custard and then got lumpy custard. <laughs> so from a sequence perspective, Guardians of the Galaxy does a stellar job of highlighting how good the other films that we've studied so far this season have been with their structure and their placement of dramatic events. Now, it sounds like I'm being very critical, but, you know, hear me out. To date, I've described the single central action in each sequence and as I've worked through this and looked at each of the scenes in the sequences, I've been able to succinctly describe what each sequence is about. So I could only do this for the first three sequences of Guardians of the Galaxy. So here's what I have. So in the first sequence, we meet Star-Lord, Ronan and Thanos, and they all want the orb. In sequence two, the gang comes together in prison and then in sequence three, they break out of prison to sell the orb. <laughs> then three, sequence four, which was working well for the first 10 minutes, it started to get messy. So the two major plot points for the middle crisis and the ending, which is the all is lost moment, are way out of whack in terms of where they are and how the sequences build to those points. The breakout of prison is the climactic event of sequence three and it sets up the Guardians to go to Gamora's potential buyer in nowhere and hopefully to a big crisis at the end of the fourth sequence. Now there is a big moment in sequence four. It's when the collector puts the orb into the machine and it turns out that the orb is a container for the power stone, which is one of the infinity stones. So via the actions of a rebellious slave or the collector's rebellious slave, the power of the power stone is revealed, which is great. But no, it's not really because that's not the end of the sequence. It continues on and all to when all the antagonists descend on nowhere and wreak havoc. Nebula then takes the stone to give it to Ronan and Quill saves Gamora by calling Yondu for help. Sequences one to three all take about 15 minutes, but this one goes for 23 minutes. And I'm actually not sure if that's where that sequence really ends. The sequence could also end after Rocket, Drax and Groot go to rescue Gamora and Peter from Yondu. So I'm just not sure where those breaks were because there was no clear distinction in terms of storytelling. So this, this group of scenes really puzzled me and the ones after this particular, so I suppose, sequence. So the plan to stop Ronan from destroying Xander is hatched and then the plan is put into motion. 
In theory, the next major crisis point of the movie should be at the end of sequence six. But in my analysis, I've marked this moment as when Quill and the crew are on Ronan's ship and they can't see and then Groot lights the way. Now, this is a lovely moment, but it's not an all is lost moment. The all is lost moment is when there have been two attempts to destroy Ronan, but he's made it onto Xandar and he's just about to destroy the planet using the power stone. Now, this is about one hour and 43 minutes into the two-hour, two-minute film. That would be okay if all the other major plot points of the story were in place, but I don't believe they are or were. The escalation of the action has no clear break and the back half of the story merges into one large act from the point where the Guardians break out of jail right up until Ronan landing on Xander. So what saves this story, I believe, is the continual escalation of the stakes. So Xander is seconds from being destroyed by Ronan the Accuser and Ronan does appear to be indestructible at this stage of the movie. So is the one long act from the fourth sequence to the eighth sequence good enough? Well, I think the answer is it depends. So if you want to watch an entertaining story with some interesting characters that further develop the Marvel Cinematic Universe timeline, then absolutely, yes, it's okay. If you're a writer trying to emulate this, then the answer would be maybe it's not okay. So why? Why is that the case and why is that the answer that I've given? So at no stage in the second part of the movie did I think our group were ever in danger of losing. Even during the scene when they all make a pact to get the power stone off Ronan, even if it means dying. Now, the real reason they need to get the stone off Ronan is to save Xander, but also to stop Thanos, because if Thanos gets the stone, then it's endgame. Did you see what I did there? For those of you who know, you'll find maybe find that funny. <laughs> Very corny mum joke. <laughs> all right, so perhaps I didn't think the characters were close enough to being killed because Peter Quill is so cocky. And the only time he appears distraught is when Gamora is left to die outside of nowhere by Nebula. Now, please don't get me wrong. I think the movie is a great romp and there are some funny scenes. And I believe that Drax steals the show in most of the scenes where he has lines. But when I watched the movie the first time in the cinema, it was the music that had the biggest impact on me, not because it was like the Bourne identity and highlighted the tension, but because it had one very specific job, and that is it generates nostalgia. It pulls on the good memories we associate with the music and that time in our lives when the music was played frequently. This is an overt use of a storytelling device called resonance. And I've been fascinated with resonance for a while now, and I look for it in movies and in books. Now, I've decided to bite the bullet and dive into resonance for season five of the podcast, but here's a quick description for you so you can see how this worked in Guardians of the Galaxy. But Valerie, did you want to pipe in and say something about resonance? Um, no, my mind is still back on the sequences. <laughs> I'm okay. I didn't, 
I didn't, um, I wasn't looking specifically at sequences or at all the act uh, breaks in Guardians of the Galaxy. I was focusing on the beginning and the end. But I have a question, a question and a comment. One, the sequence structure that we're looking at this season presumes that the story is built around four acts. The beginning, the middle broken into two pieces, and the end. However, you can break a story down into a lot of different parts. I mean, typically, if the beginning is one unit and the end is one unit, and the middle is broken down into two pieces, three pieces, whatever, four pieces, whatever you need. So one question I have is, is it possible that Guardians of the Galaxy is not using a four-act structure? Could that be why this eight-sequence structure that we're learning is not mapping onto the story very well. That's one question I have. So it's possible. It's absolutely possible. However, if you were going to do that, then you wouldn't establish the movie the way that it was, in my opinion. So it's really clear at the beginning that there are three distinct sequences. And then we move into a very large, large sequence that has minimal breaks in it. So if you were going to start out using a different framework, so however you wanted to break it down into five acts and whatever that looked like, then you would start to do that. But this doesn't start that way. So I, it's possible that they morphed into that, but when I look at it, that's not how I think they intended to start out just because I looked at the first three sequences and could clearly identify what those breaks were. Now, it's an interesting study because, I, you know, I, I think as long as there's an escalation path in that middle build or that, that really long sort of sequence from the third or sort of fourth onwards, I think the story still works because you are having an escalation of or progressive complications to that climactic moment where they have to confront Ronan. And I think that makes it easy to watch because that's happening anyway and you do expect that escalation point to that you know facing off of the villain it's just that when I'm trying to break it down I've highlighted or I've discovered that oh this doesn't work as neatly as the other stories that we've looked at this this season and it's an interesting point of difference but I do think it's saved by the escalation anyway of the complications after that particular point the observation then that I have, or the comment that I have, is that stories have a nested structure. So the story is one unit and it's made up of smaller units that all look like the main unit. (laughs) One feeds inside the other. Okay. And often, very often, we see that the beginning or the end of one unit of story bleeds into the beginning of the next unit of story. So there isn't always a hard and fast line. So sometimes the story looks like bricks on a wall where they're all separate bricks, but just as often it's kind of like the colors of a rainbow where one bleeds into the next. So that that could be what's happening too, maybe? Well, it is actually, and I looked at that and identified it because there were points where, and I think that's why you get that continuous escalation, that it's not a, so, you know, if we think about this in terms of something happens, there's progressive complications, 
a turning point, then a question that has to be answered, the answer, and then the resolution. I do think in this movie, after, as we move into that fourth sequence, that the resolution and the inciting incident absolutely are the same thing. And that is why it is harder to break that up into sequences from that that point onward. And I identified that when I was doing my analysis. Um, so it, what I do is I've got a table and I have each sequence written down and I go through and put events in it. And then I did start looking for that. And that's exactly what I identified, that the blending of those two points is what then makes that a continuous escalation as opposed to finding a break in the action. So I think that's absolutely what's going on. Good technique. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it's a different, it is worth noting because it does create, uh, it creates continuous movement, right? It, can, it, it really does escalate things to that climactic moment. Okay. I'm sorry I interrupted. No, 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 that's good. <laughs> right. Yes. So don't let me go on too long for this because I, I actually do find resonance really, really fascinating. Right. So in David Farland's book, and his book is called Drawing on the Power of Resonance, on page eight, he says, resonance taps into the powerful emotions we feel when we read a book that somehow resembles other works that we love. There are literally hundreds of ways to create resonance through voice tone, characterization, imagery, setting, or simply by referring to popular works, by bringing common experiences to life, and so on. If you can create resonance in your work, then it will evoke powerful emotions and memories in the reader. The music in Guardians of the Galaxy evokes memories which help us connect to Peter Quill, who also likes the same music, and he actively listens to it. The music also helps us overlook some of the messiness in the story because we are in a mentally happy place singing along to I'm Not In Love by 10cc or Come And Get Your Love by Redbone. And it's all right to enjoy the music in this movie and any movie and it's a powerful device when used to help people connect to the story. The music is used to great effect in this movie and it's also key to beating Ronan at the end. So the music serves multiple purposes. Now, of course, all of the Marvel movies use resonance because the comics have been around for many years and people want to see these characters brought to life again. The costumes and the storylines are consistent or consistent enough with the original works, and that is resonance used in a very large way throughout these series of films and stories that are being told. However, I'm focused on sequences this season, <laughs> so I better get back to it. <laughs> so the, my biggest takeaway from looking at the Guardians of the Galaxy sequences was confirming the value of using sequences to structure the main events where things happen in a story. The absence of a clear of clear sequences, I believe, made Guardians of the Galaxy seem a bit endless in the second half. The lack of a, of a clear all-is-lost moment at the end of the second act lessened the impact when the Guardians did defeat Ronan, in my view. The gap between the protagonist hitting the wall and taking a massive leap of faith to defeat the antagonist seems essential. And we saw this in The Bourne Identity, 
and in sense and sensibility. Now, while the Blair Witch Project doesn't have a positive outcome, the time between Josh disappearing and the other two characters finding the house was powerful. We wallowed in the moment of despair with them. We also, in The Born Identity, understood why Jason resolved to face Treadstone after he killed the professor, who would have killed two children just to get to Bourne. And we're relieved when Edward finally visits the Dashwoods and proposes to Eleanor. So I didn't know that I missed this in story until it wasn't there. Valerie, what do you think in terms of having a pause between that all is lost moment and then when the protagonist maybe goes ahead to decide a different course of action? I'm sorry, I don't know because my mind is still back on resonance. <laughs> I am I am behind a step from all of this whole episode. <laughs> so you started to talk about resonance. Resonance. I'm totally going to just not answer your question and talk about what I want to talk about. <laughs> um, I've been thinking about resonance, okay, since you were just talking about it, and I thought about Ready Player One, and it's re- I mean, I mean that's a good book for anyone who played those video games. It's kind of like a walk down memory na- memory lane. The other thing I'm thinking about is this is why we like uh, books in a series because we've met the characters in book one and we've hung out in that world. So when we pick up book two in the series, we get to go back and hang out with a friend that we've already met in a world that we already know we like. So would that also be a concept of resonance? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And it's used quite a lot in series as well. So if you think back about episode four of Star Wars, like A New Hope and where Luke starts off, and then you look at episode seven and where Ray starts off, they are, and the colors of, that they wear, they are absolutely the same thing. They are on a desert planet wearing sandy colored things. They meet, they meet droids and then they go on an adventure after they've met somebody who can take them outside of that world. So absolutely, it, it, you come back to those places because they make you feel good and it uses resonance. And so resonance can be used in many different ways. So it can be used visually as cues. It can be used in music. And it is just that re- referencing back to something that the reader or the viewer finds familiar and and comforting. You can also use it in reverse as well, right? So, and we saw a little bit of that in uh, the Blair Witch Project that spoke of and referred back to horror stories in that genre and, and and was in some ways a bit of a homage, although it was slightly different to horror stories of the past. And it got back to that bare bones horror story and that was resonance, but used in a slightly different way. So yes, it's it's about going back to and feeling similar things. So fan fiction does a bit of that as well, from what I understand, because it will either go make a, a branch off into a new part of that world, 
or create slightly different versions of similar characters. And I think that's what people are trying to do. They're trying to keep that link alive or go back to the things that they really enjoyed or have good, make them feel good or have good memories for them. That's really neat. Okay, I probably should get to an action step, shouldn't I? <laughs> I want you to think back to <laughs> all the uh, the concept that York, uh, John York uh, talked about the stepping into the the story and then mirroring that way, the way you step out of your story. So Guardians of the Galaxy is actually a really good example. We saw the one, two, three steps in, and those three steps are in reverse order in the ending payoff. Now, we know it doesn't have to be strictly that tight of a mirror because Goodwill Hunting wasn't strictly that tight and the thing won an Oscar. So it wasn't clearly suffering from the fact that it wasn't a precise mirror. So if your story isn't an exact mirror, that probably will be okay as long as you're answering the question that you posed in the beginning and as long as the same elements are there. And there's a really logical reason for this. You know, if we think about when we were little kids and we said to our parents or our older siblings or aunts or uncles or somebody, tell me a story. And then the older person said, well, okay, I'm going to tell you a story about a little girl named Valerie. And she wanted an ice cream, but she couldn't have one or something like that. So you want at the end of the story to find out if the little girl got her ice cream. Because that's because at the beginning, we said, I'm going to tell you a story about this little girl and this is what she wanted. That's how we, that's exactly the same concept. It's exactly the same concept, except we're writing stories now for adults in this case. You know, all the movies that we're analyzing, um, I think all of them so far, certainly this season have been adult movies. We've got a kids movie coming up, a couple of them. So, so that's the whole concept. At the beginning of the story, we say, dear reader, this is the story I'm going to tell you. I'm telling you a story about this character who wants this particular thing. By the end of the story, we have to pay that off. We have to circle back to that protagonist and the thing that they wanted that was established in the beginning of the story and make sure we've answered those questions. So whether we do that as an exact mirror or not is not, I think, as important as whether the same elements are there. So take a look at your own work in progress. Never mind the middle. Just pull out the beginning, pull out the end, and see how they're working as a unit. That wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss The Water Horse. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For even more information about putting story theory into practice, subscribe to Valerie's Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. And you can also now find her on TikTok at Valerie Francis Author. If you'd like to find more out about me, visit melaniehill.com.au or find me on Facebook under Melanie Hill Author. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take one step of it at a time. <laughs> 
and have fun. (laughs) 